pastor's going to come and I forgot to let the kids go, kindergarten, uh, three years old through kindergarten, if they haven't gone yet, find your way out to your class. Thanks. All right, First Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bibles. I probably need to turn this on, and I don't think I did yet, but First Corinthians Last song, Speak O Lord, I was reminded, I had flashbacks to being a youth pastor, because that was the song we always sang every Wednesday before the message. We always sang that one, which was interesting. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it has nothing to do with the message, but I thought that was a neat anecdote. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this evening. We're kind of picking up where we left off, believe it or not. Even though last week we had a missions conference, I didn't really plan that out well. Uh, I put something in between them. Uh, but we had, we, we had been focusing on, and have been now for several weeks, the DNA, or the core of the local church. And there are elements to the church that are just uh, part and parcel to the foundational matters, the DNA, you could say the skeleton, skeletal system of what a church is and does. And we've looked at what a church is, and in this series we've now made our way towards what a church does. And uh, in that, we've looked and seen that there are two ordinances of the Lord's, of, of the Lord's church, and the one being uh, baptism, and we looked at that now two weeks ago. And today, we're going to look at the Lord's table, or communion. Now, as we come to that, we're coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a communion passage, but it's always good to have good usage of words. Words do matter. They really do. And so we need to be careful about the usage of terms. And I, I want to define a couple of key terms with, with you this evening before we venture into this subject so that you can be on the same page with me as we look at that. And we are using the term one way and not the other. We're using the term ordinance when it comes to the matters of baptism and communion instead of the term that you may have heard, the term sacrament. What is the difference? What is the difference? Well, an ordinance, the term ordinance refers to an outward rite which our Lord commanded in Scripture to be administered in churches as visible signs of the saving faith of the gospel. Those ordinances are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are commanded by the Lord as visible pictures of an inward transaction. That's an ordinance. Now, there are some that may come particularly to the matter this evening, communion, and call it a sacrament. And you'll never hear us use the term sacrament for this reason. A sacrament, that term literally means to consecrate. It is typically used in a liturgical church when speaking of consecrated matters, focusing especially on the elements of the Lord's table, sometimes on the rite of baptism, with the opinion of those that participate in these consecrated times of communion, somehow mysteriously receiving God's grace through that sacred time, that sacrament. We're not using the word sacrament, we're using the word ordinance. And there is a very important distinction between the two. This evening, we're going to look at four words, which someone has said are some of the most disputed words in the entire history of the church. Here are the words. This is my body. D.A. Carson had this to say about them. Historically, that little clip of four words has endangered massive disputations and arguments. 
For 2,000 years, the church around the globe has celebrated the Lord's table or communion in a variety of different ways, most often dispersed between the two usages of those terms. In some churches, it is an elaborate and ornate affair that dominates the entirety of the service. In other churches, it is observed at the end of the service. Some churches observe it every Lord's gathering. Other churches observe it at random intervals. And there's all kinds of different speculation and practice when it comes to this. And it has resulted in profound debate and differences of opinion that 1 Corinthians 11 deserves our undivided attention addressing this evening. Let's read the passage before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, and we'll pick it apart. Here's what Paul says regarding this practice in the church. For I have received, Paul says, of the Lord that which I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new testament of my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The Lord's Supper is not a magical, mystical, spooky religious ritual that many religions have it to be today. Rather, there is a profound message in the meal. The reason we attach so much significance to it is because it is instituted and commanded by our Lord, as it is reiterated to us by the Apostle Paul here. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for one reason, and that reason should be very clear as we start this message, that we might remember two very important facets of our faith. There are two facets of communion, each illustrating something that we are to remember these should be very cemented in your thinking. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. It's well for us to return to scriptures and be reminded of the significance of what we do as we gather for communion. Because you must come to the Lord's Supper examining yourselves and remembering what Christ did for you and these elements are done to remind you of that. In fact, I feel so strongly about Christians' obedience to this practice that I think a Christian should question his own commitment to Christ if they do not observe communion. This should not be taken lightly, and it should not certainly be avoided either. There is a profound message to this meal. Every time we gather together and partake in Lord's communion, we see and participate in a living illustration of the gospel. And this evening we consider then the, the ordinance of communion. We'll break it down by staying in 1 Corinthians 11. What are we doing as we look at this command? Number one, we look back at Christ's command. We focus here uh, not as a matter of take it or leave it, but we quickly discover that participation in communion is an obligation. This phrasing in this passage makes it very evident that Christ is giving to his followers not a suggestion, but a command. 
Look what he says in verse 23. I have received the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This is a command. And as commands are, commands are not optional. Lord's Supper became a normal celebration of the early church. In fact, upon hearing Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, it says many of the people in Jerusalem got saved in Acts chapter 2. And what did they do? Acts 2 verse 42. Here's what they did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and what else? And in breaking of bread and in prayers. What is that? That's communion. The early church was involved in four basic activities. This is what they did. Here's what they did. Teaching the revelation of the apostles received from God. That's what we have housed in Scripture for us. That's what we are to teach. Ministering to other believers. That's edification. That's what fellowship means. Observing the Lord's Supper and prayer. If you were going to ask, what did the early church do? This is it. This is what the early church did. If you were going to say, well, if we could just start paring down the church calendar and just stripping it away of all of the, you know, the stuff that we do that's a lot of fun, what would you, what could you never take away? You can't take away these. Why? This is what we see practiced. The church practiced communion primarily as a matter of remembrance. It is designated to stimulate our hearts and mind in remembrance of what Christ has done. The early church recognized this from its foundations as a command. There has been an unfortunate misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 11, which has creeped into our churches. There are those who come to understand verse 28 as a reason to delay in partaking in communion. Look at verse 28. Here's what it says. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. And so they'll say, well, I can't take it today. I need to examine myself, and I'll take it next time. Well, that, this is most certainly a strange understanding. I could say misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. Since none of Paul's language in this passage at all indicates it is optional. It's actually a misinterpretation. It's a dangerous one. What do you do if you find yourself in a position where you're saying, I am not worthy right now to partake? The answer is not to just pass the plate by and say, well, I'll just do it next time. The answer, probably from the indications and the commanded language Paul uses, is you probably should rise from your seat, remove yourself, and make it right, right away. That's what it means, like immediately. I think we may have missed this a little bit. You say, well, what if I've got like a brother or sister that I, that's their problem. Like they're in the room and I've got like some, some kind of turmoil between me and them. You rise from your seat. I would suggest if you're really taking this seriously, you go across the room and you make it right, right there. That's what we're talking about. This is not an optional command. This remembrance is commanded. And the language of this text could not possibly be made any more clear. Participation in the Lord's table is not an option for believers. Prolonged absence from it is spiritually unhealthy, and willful neglect of it may even be regarded as disciplinary. This is not optional. And this command is to be done often. The celebration of the Lord's table becomes normal practice of the early church. 
I am convinced that in its infancy, the early church practiced communion on a daily basis. You say, how did you do that? Well, look at Acts 2, verse 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. In fact, it's not unlikely that they may have had communion at every meal that they ate. It was common in those days for fellowships to revolve around a table as people ate together. It would have been common if you came to church in the morning to just stay all day until it got dark outside. Well, if you're there all the time, well, let's, let's have a pitch in. So honestly, potluck started with the early church, I guess. <laughs> Later in the book of Acts, we note the frequency of sharing a meal with communion was reduced to a weekly pattern instead of a daily pattern. And you may ask, look at the verse, it says in Acts 20, verse 7, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. So early on, in, in, in its infancy, this was daily. As the church grows and the progression of the Acts takes place, we come to chapter 20, and now it's not a daily thing, it's a weekly thing. Why the change? Well, why the change? Honestly, you could answer it because of what would have happened when they make the decry that I'm no longer uh, a Jewish temple goer. This, this, is, this is a time, this would have been a formative time, an early church. This is the foundational times. They need that. And as they mature, hopefully they're venturing out into the communities and they're continuing to be the hands and feet of Christ. And then they gather on the, mid, on the first day of the week. And when the church met together on the first day of the week, they would have had what they used to have daily. Fellowships and meals and communion followed by a sermon. Since the Bible doesn't specify, though, the frequency of observing the Lord's table or the particulars, it would be acceptable to observe it after any meal or gathering in the church. You could have, actually, a church fellowship, potluck, and have communion afterwards. That would be apparently appropriate. In fact, in some ways, it may pattern more what we see in Acts than what we do in our services. The importance is that you obey what the Lord says. However often you practice the Lord's table, you obey. Now the complaint is that if you just do it all the time, it becomes empty ritual, right? How do we deal with that problem? Well, anything that you do on a regular basis is going to become empty ritual if you're not careful, right? Reading your Bible every morning can be something you do to check off your to-do list if you're not careful. It could become empty ritual. Prayer can become empty ritual when you just run through your prayer list every day, because that's what you're supposed to do. Singing during worship services can be mindless ritual. What do we do? Do we just say, well, I guess I can't sing anymore, I guess I can't pray anymore, and I shouldn't read my Bible anymore? Of course not. We would never do that. I tell my wife that I love her every morning, and then I kiss her on the way out, and then I tell my wife I love her before bed and kiss her at night. Should I just stop doing that because I do that every day? Don't say yes to that. Right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Anything you do every time can become empty ritual. What do you do? Well, in any case, in any way, Paul's comment at 1 Corinthians verse 11, verse 24 says, as often as you eat it. It indicates that there's a frequent basis to this. And as often as you eat it, you keep it fresh. Whose responsibility is that? You just got to get more creative, Right? Got to change up the cracker brand. Maybe that'll help us out. <laughs> no. Whose responsibility is to keep it fresh? It's your responsibility. 
This do in remembrance of me. Every time we partake in communion, we are doing this because we are commanded to do this. Therefore, we look back at Christ's command, and that's what we do. But next, we look up at the cross. What kind of message does the cross send us? It is the supreme message that God loves sinners and gave himself for them on the cross. This is what we are remembering. Each time we take the bread and place it in our tongue and take the cup to our lips, we are remembering the story of a true friend who gave himself for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And as you look to the cross, you remember what Christ did. You remember the pain of his sacrifice. Jesus says to us as we partake in communion, This is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Think for a moment what Christ suffered on the cross. Think about it. He was beaten, Luke 22 tells us. He was scourged, Matthew 27 tells us, a fulfillment, really, of Psalm 129. He was spit upon, Matthew 27 says. He was mocked in Matthew 27. His beard was plucked out. He was nailed to the cross and crucified. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. How could I forget the Lord? But the reality is, we get busy doing all sorts of things, even serving the Lord, that we forget the Lord himself. In my office, I have several photographs of my family. Many of you have already seen them. If I were to ask, or you were to ask me, are those pictures for you to hang on your office so you don't forget who your family is? Of course not. That's not why those pictures are there. Those pictures are there because I remember my family. I love my family. They touch my heart. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus left us a picture of himself to remember him by. And we should pause and look at it often. And when we do, it should remind us of the great love of his on the cross. And we remember not only the pain of his cross, but also the payment of his sacrifice. The fact that he willingly gave that body on the cross for us says everything that needs to be said about his love for sinners. Romans 5, verse 6 puts it this way. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended or proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't crucify our Lord again in communion. We remember that he was crucified. Now Christians have been divided over that phrase in verse 24. This is my body. I alerted you to that. Historically, the elements of communion have been a matter of great controversy. In fact, the early church was accused by the Romans of cannibalism when they said they were taking the body of Christ. That was what the Romans said of the early Christians. They were cannibalists. But remember, Jesus instructed this to be done prior to his crucifixion. Prior to his crucifixion. This was to be done, which indicates this was a symbolic picture. Here's what he said. For as often as you eat this dread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. But there are those who have had much debate over the elements, the bread and the cup. And there are three major categories of them. We could call one transubstantiationism. What is transubstantiation? Well, this is the Roman Catholic view. 
Here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1376, says. Quote, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was his, truly his body that he was offering under the species of the bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, meaning the Ro- Roman Catholic Church, and this Holy Council, meaning the leaders of the Catholic Church, now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation, end quote. What is that? They believe that the presence of Christ has literally come, the Catholic Church has come down, and now we worship the elements. In fact, the elements are given a name. You know what they call it? They call it the host. And when the priest puts the wafer on the tongue of the congregant, he says, every time he does so, the body of Christ. What is he saying? Did you know this? It's the, the Latin phrase that the priest says when he blesses the elements sounds like hocus pocus. That's where we get the phrase hocus pocus, right? They are saying when they bless that, when the priest blessed that at that time, that the cracker literally becomes the body of Christ and the wine literally becomes his blood. That's what they are saying. So a Catholic parishioner is instructed when he receives that wafer not to do something. He is not allowed to chew. Why? Because that's the host. Now my family on my mom's side, they, they grew up Catholic. My uncle didn't, and they, we, they were later converted, and for that we rejoice. But his wife was Catholic, and they had gone to the communion service, and he was given a cracker, and he didn't want to take it, so he put it on the ground, and that was audibly gasps in the room, because that's the body of Christ he just put on the ground. That's how they view. That's a view called transubstantiation. It's weird, but it's a view. Well, the reformers came about. And they said, That's, we don't agree with that view. We have a view we call consubstantiation. What's consubstantiation? This is the view of Martin Luther and the Lutheran Church to this day. They come up with a, we could say, or I would say, an intermedi- intermediary position. The idea is that the communion of the body and blood of the Christ and the wine coexist in union with one another. Here's what the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Theology for the Lutheran Church says in their most recent edition. Luther illustrated it by the analogy of the iron put into the fire whereby both the fire and the iron are united in the red-hot iron and yet continue unchanged. You got that? I don't know if that illustration helped me either. (laughs) Their belief is that the bread and cup have taken on a dual purpose. Just as Christ is both fully God and fully man, the cracker is both a cracker and the body of Christ. It's kind of like a yes, but, and also kind of position, right? (laughs) But we don't take either of those positions. We take what's called a symbolic form. We simply believe 
that communion is a symbolic picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. The cracker is not magical, all right? Neither is the cup. We do this in remembrance, not in presence. With all due respect to sincere people out there, it is crassly, materially, methodologically, if you can say that word, it's turning the sacred memorial of the supper into a cannibalistic ritual. It really is. And it's bizarre, and it's weird, and it's confusing, and it takes away from what's really happening. What's really happening is a picture. Actually, it's very similar to the parables that we've learned. This is a parable in true form. A parable would be throwing down a story next to the truth, and we're throwing down a picture next to the truth of what he had done. That's communion. But thirdly, we look inward at our consecration. Communion is a time for introspection. The concluding verses in this section ought to bring a holy hush into our hearts. Here's what it says in verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What is that talking about? Well, the conviction of unworthy communion. Paul is challenging the Corinthians about how they partake in communion. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily. This word unworthily refers to an unworthy manner, not your own personal worth or worthiness. It's an adjective, not a verb. Therefore, it is referring to your manner and approach. There are a few commonly held positions when it comes to this. When it comes to those who would gather the approach to communion, views about communion itself as we gather. There are three common views. Some would call it open communion. What they mean by that is anybody who wants to come, regardless of their belief, background, baptisms, or salvation, can take. Just pass the plate by and you can take. That anybody who gathers, anybody at all, you can partake in communion. That's open communion. There are a few Baptist churches who practice this, but very, very few. There are those who believe in something called a closed communion. This is that only the members of that particular congregation can take. This would veer off into what landmark Baptists would believe. Only those in that particular location can take in communion. You have to be a member on their list to be part of the communion. We don't believe in either of those. We practice close communion. That's when a faithful challenge that communion is only for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, have been obedient to his first command, baptism, and are willing to examine themselves in a worthy manner, only those can partake in communion. We here at Faith Baptist feel most comfortable holding to a close communion position. A man who tramples on his nation's flag isn't merely trampling on a piece of cloth, is he? He is guilty of dishonoring his country. Likewise, someone who tramples on the body and blood of Christ as represented in communion is guilty of dishonoring Christ himself. It is possible to come to communion in an unworthy manner. How would you do that? Well, You can come to communion unworthily by ignoring it rather than obeying it. That would be one way. 
If we say it is irrelevant or unimportant or not for us today, we are coming to it unworthily. There can be sins of commission or omission. This would be a sin of omission. We could come to communion unworthily by failing to observe it meaningfully. Superficial ceremony, irreverence can prevent us from personally experiencing communion with Christ. We're just not paying attention. We're just not really taking it seriously. You can come to communion by unworthily by assuming that it can save you, actually. You should never partake in communion if you think that it will somehow merit to you the salvation of Christ. Communion is for those who are already in union with Christ. You can come to communion unworthily by refusing to confess and repent of your sin. You should never partake in communion if you have unresolved bitterness towards another Christian or unconfessed sin, known sin in your life. You need to take care of that, not later, but right away. You could have a le- just a general lack of respect. though That goes both to respect for God and respect for his children. Therefore, Paul urges you in verse 28, examine yourself. And the Greek word translated examine conveys the idea of rigorous self-examination. One commentator I read likened it to a spiritual MRI. Check your life, your motives, your attitudes. Don't be flippant, careless, indifferent, unrepentant, or irreverent as you come to this matter. But you could, what is the consequence? What if you did come in an unworthy manner? In 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord makes this a big deal. Under the pen of inspiration, Paul says this in verse 27. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We want to be very careful as to the invitation given, don't we? And so he says in verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The result of coming to the Lord's table unworthily is that you are guilty of treating Christ's unique life and death as something common and insignificant. In fact, the Greek word translated judgment here, guilty of judgment, is krima. It's better translated chastisement. It refers to the Lord's chastisement of believers, not the damnation of of believers. He's saying that you will be guilty of God's severe hand of chastisement. The Lord, one commentator put it this way, the Lord disciplined the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper by causing some to be sick and by taking the lives of others. The Greek word translated sleep is a common New Testament metaphor for the death of believers. The same word translated sleep here in 1 Corinthians is used again that way, talking about death in John 11, 11, Acts 7, verse 60, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 15. A sufficient number in Corinth had died, Paul is saying, for partaking of the Lord's Supper in in a reverent manner. In a similar way, God put to death Ananias and Sapphira for lying against the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. Such stark reminders of God's holiness and man's sinfulness are rarely preached. (laughs) But they are certainly there. John MacArthur put it this way, some Christians today, quote, 
have quite possibly become weak and sick or have died as a result of incorrectly observing communion, end quote. At this point, Christians might hesitate coming to the Lord's Supper <laughs> for fear of getting the divine zap. <laughs> However, Paul assures us that although we might be chastened by the Lord, we will not be damned by the Lord. God disciplines his children not to punish them into hell, but to correct their sinful behavior and direct them on the paths of righteousness. But the Lord is very serious about communion, is he not? Pretty serious here. We must not overlook its significance. Here's what he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. What are we doing? We're looking back and we're saying, Christ commanded this. That's why we're doing this. We're looking up and we're remembering what Christ did on the cross. And we're looking inward and we're saying, what do I need to work on? John Stott once forcefully stated when he was preaching on this text, if the cross is not central in our thinking, it is safe to say our faith, whatever it be, is not the Christian faith, and our creed, whatever it be, is not the Apostles' Creed. If you can't come to communion without being moved, there's something wrong. Not with communion, but with yourself. Find out when your church is celebrating communion next, and be serious about it. Meditate on it. Beforehand, on the way to church, even afterwards. And then during the service, fight any temptation to daydream. Make a conscious effort to say, I am locked in to what is going on right now. And that may be different for different folks. I appreciate those who'd say, I'm, I'm going to be serious about communion by just, I'm going I'm to, in this moment, close my eyes, bow my head, talk to God undistractedly. That's one way I've seen some do that. That's a great way. Others, perhaps at times, the instruments are playing, and you say, you know, I, I want to turn to the song that's being played and meditate on the lyrics before it. It just kind of brings to the attention. I've seen that happen. I've seen some open a hymnal and, and read it. Others, perhaps, I've seen this as well, open their Bibles to a passage of Scripture.